are you still as full as I am from last night's festivities? I, for breakfast, I had water. So that <laughs> tells you a little something. <laughs> this is the first seated position I have that's not obtuse. <laughs> so always, I'm always past the angle. Yeah, you know? I, I, I. So this is the first. I, the first. It's processed enough that I can have a right angle. To and my and I posture. and I can't sort of get out of my head the, hey mambo, mambo italiano, hey mambo, mambo italiano. I was I was the token dago, wasn't I? Was I the only Italian? In, no, 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 Shoot, no, no. There were there were other Italians. Were don't yeah. don't flatter yourself. <laughs> Hey there, Booth Wonners. You've tuned into the best in the art of lively conversation. Your host, Gary Zabinski, here. And sharing the booth with me today is one of our all-time favorite guests and co-hosts, Mr. Paul Strolley. How are you, Paul? I'm, I'm chilling like Bob Dylan. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> Did you know that you are the first guest to visit the booth for the third time? For the third time. You're the Booth One equivalent of Alec Baldwin. <laughs> Or Steve Martin on Saturday Night Live. Oh, okay. I'm I'm the returning guest host. You you are. I'm the returning uh, guest host. Someday you'll say this is my 27th ho- time hosting, <laughs> yes. guest hosting. I'll be in the 27 Timers Club. We're recording on April Fool's Day. This is our 55th episode. In trucker parlance, they call that the uh, double nickel. Double nickel. Yeah, as oh. they're driving. You know, Illinois lawnmakers, if they get their way, the old 55-mile-per-hour speed limit is going to be a thing of the past. There's a movement to uh, increase the state yeah. highway speed limit to 70. Do you, yeah. do you like to drive? It's, you, you it's, strike it's, me it's as actually a guy who... funded by paramedics, I think. They're the ones who are going after it. Downtown <laughs> and, Los Angeles on 5th Street, they call that the nickel. Nah, I'll meet you on the nickel. You strike me as a fast driver. Do you like to drive fast? I like to drive fast. My father raced motorcycles in Europe for years. And I love motorcycles. And uh, I mean, the I, kind I, where you kind of lean over he, to the he side. Did, he did, side, you, he did you, sidecar racing. You skid yeah. on your knee yeah, pad. Yeah. He did all that stuff. And I had motorcycles for years, but I had to get rid of them in Los Angeles because it's just the traffic and all that is crazy. I've, I've entertained the idea of getting another one now that we live back in Chicago. But I do, I do like the speed, as they say. I've often wanted a Vespa. Not yeah. a full motorcycle, although I'd like to learn to ride a motorcycle. Yeah. So if you get one, you can teach me. I actually think motorcycles are safer than Vespas because the way your center of gravity is and leaning into a turn, and you're also more visible because it's a bigger and you're louder. I think so it's a skill that I should have, how to, it's, how it's, to drive it, a motorcycle. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It is, it's inherently dangerous. There's no way around that. Yeah. But there's a lot of things. I'll t- take it over skydiving any day of the week. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about what's going on with our dear Roscoe. Not much to report. Just a bit longer road to full mobility than initially predicted. I hope he's doing well. We appreciate you taking the time from your busy schedule of producing, writing, directing, and acting <laughs> to keeping Roscoe's seat warm and bringing it's your no, it, singular wit it's and no showbiz's bar- insights I'm to the show. It's no so. Barca lounger, though. I'm keeping his seat warm, but it's no Barca lounger like he has. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hey, give us an update on Tony and Tina's really quickly. What's going on? Oh, there? it's going great. We're we're actually going to have a good shot in the arm with uh, some uh, new cast people. Uh, not that the other people weren't wonderful, but uh, because it's running so long, people are moving on to other things. Some of the cast members. So come the end of April, we're going to have new blood, as it were. We'll have a new Tina for a little while. We'll have a new Donnie Dolce. The nice thing is, is that most of the people who uh, are leaving the show are only going on hiatus. 
this because it's just sort of scheduling issues. They all want to come back. They all want to uh, rejoin the family. We have some summer stand-ins, some summer swings, as they say, and then they're going to be back in the fall, and we're already booking fall shows, and uh, Fantastic. people are planning their holiday parties. It's amazing. So happy for you, yeah. and so glad that we could be part of promoting it. Uh, I know yeah. a lot of people who listen to our show who have gone, oh, really? who wouldn't have gone uh, had they not heard us talking about it and and heard you uh, touting the fabulous benefits of a night of entertainment. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We had this conversation. We were at dinner last night, and one of the people there was saying that she probably wouldn't have gone. Like you said, and it's nice to be able to tell people that, that it's not what a lot of people think. You know, we're going up against a stigma of what interactive theater is, and it's not theme park stuff. Right, There's some right. real genuine, dare I say, touching performances in it. Yeah, you know, just yeah. because it's raucous doesn't mean it's not real. No, you know? exactly right. Speaking of touching performances, you and I both saw a show this past week. Mm. And uh, I want to talk a bit about this because I was so moved by the entire experience. We went to see a show called Circus 1903. 1903 refers to a year. And it is a show of somewhat nostalgia quality where they want to bring us the circus as it used to be with a concentration on the artists and the acts and the artistry of these performers. I had a wonderful time. It's a great show, and it's not just for kids, and it's in a proscenium setting. It's in a real theater, not in a tent or in the round no. or anything crazy like that. Did you enjoy it as I, much as I, I did? I loved it, and, I, and I'm, I'm a circus junkie anyway. Or anything related to circus arts and things like that. It's all sort of, I think, because I loved Commedia dell'arte. There's sort of a darkness about circuses. There's sort of a little macabre kind of feeling to them. It's like the farming of theater because it's the grittiest of theater. If I'm on stage and I'm performing and something goes wrong, I might be embarrassed, but I'll get past it. And there... The bar is literally set so much higher. It's like you do something wrong, you end up injured. You know, yeah. there's so much more at stake with with circus arts than there is with theater. So I, I love that high risk. You know, no pun intended, but the high wire. Yeah. mindset of yeah. the whole thing. And I, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. It's, it's a wonderful show. It's, it's now about to open at the theater at Madison Square Garden in New York for, for a bit of a run. And then it's going on the road to places like Hartford and Dallas, Austin, Houston, St. Paul, Minnesota. If you're in any of those towns, you should go to circus1903.com. That's 1903.com and look up their travel itinerary. But I wanted to mention some of the performers. First of all, there was this ringmaster who they called Willie Whipsnake. And this guy, David Williamson, kind of leads us through the show, introducing the acts, doing some bit of his own. And uh, this guy is a master magician. I'm not sure if you read about him at all, but he has twice been voted the close-up magician of the year and parlor magician of the year by his peers at Hollywood's renowned Magic Castle. Now, he doesn't do a lot of magic on stage. He does a little bit with the kids. But he's just setting the scene and the stage for 
for us, and he's a really great ringmaster. He's almost like the stage manager in our town. Yeah. Welcome yeah. to the circus. <laughs> and he takes us through uh, all of the acts and how in the, the turn of the century it was the golden age of circus, and performers were key. They mm. were the real focus. One of the most difficult things that he does is one of the most unnoticed, in my opinion, because people who don't perform don't realize that, that he's marrying two worlds there. He has to deal with people, in this case children, on stage, and also fill a room and engage everyone to the back row. And that dance of doing both, of filling the room and engaging everyone in the room and then talking to children on stage and not victimizing them and not making them the butt of the joke, but rather include them in the joke, that is a skill set that a lot... That's a hosting skill set. It's a, it's a comic skill set. It's, it's the patter of the magician. And that's one of those things that is, is not easy to pull off unless you have a lot of time working extemporaneously. Yeah, he's a, he's a master yeah. of that. Yeah. Speaking of the other acts, there was an aerialist called Lucky Moon, a young lady named Elena Gatilova, who did this hoop routine to this beautiful, beautiful music. It was jaw-dropping and awe-inspiring, and you could hear a pin drop in that theater. It's, uh, it's at the uh, Oriental Theater, or was at yeah. the Oriental Theater here in Chicago. Big, a big theater, a big house, 2,000-plus yeah. seats for sure. Also, uh, the Cycling Cyclone. This may have been my favorite act. This was a guy named Florian Blummel, yeah. and he rode a bicycle in ways that... Well, um, I still have a hip pointer from it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just watching it. Yeah, yeah. It was tremendous. The Elastic Dislocationist, I'm going to try to pronounce her name, Senayat Asefa Amare. Wow. Yeah. She could do stuff that blew your mind. Yeah, that was, that was painful. <laughs> Do you train for something like that? Are you just genetically suited to do it? There were times it looked like she had no rib cage at all. Uh, according to her bio, she has been training alongside contortionists since the age of 11, learning this craft in India and in Africa. Uh, wow. She's just t t tremendous. Yeah. I, we saw her a couple of days later on the uh, Colbert show. Have you ever wanted to uh, learn how to contort yourself in ways that well, when I was astounded and amazed. When I was in college, I did, but those were very lonely years. So that's probably why I wanted to explore that. Side yeah. of my <laughs> but and, but and, uh, and what's what's the beauty of these acts is they are the only thing happening on stage, and it's a big stage. Yeah. When they're doing their act, your whole focus is right on them. Yeah. As I said at the at the start, the entire conceit of this circus nineteen oh three is to bring your focus into the artistry and the athleticism of these performers and how much, as you're watching them, I'm thinking, how many hours? How many hours have... This is all they do. They're yeah. like fine classical musicians. Um, exactly. They spend their entire lives just honing their craft. Well, not only the hours, but the years of what preceded them, because they have their heroes, and they follow them and, and follow the whole history of, of the craft and, and what it's become over the years. I was thinking about Olympic 
competition. Because you think about how many hours and, and years they train, and it all comes down to that moment. It all comes down to when they're in competition. And they, they call, all comes down to that moment. I mean, how long was the longest act? Maybe six minutes? Six, seven so, minutes, yeah, that, something like that. But sure. focused and distilled and, and excellent, yeah. One of the great, great things about this show is that they engaged the people who created the horse puppetry movements uh, for War Horse, the, yep. uh, the show, and they've recreated two elephants, uh, a mm -hmm. giant elephant, full size, yeah. and a baby elephant named Peanut, I think. And they open these back curtains sort of halfway through the first act and out lumbers this gigantic elephant yeah. with beautiful giant eyes and ears that are flapping and a trunk that's going and, and the gait is absolutely perfect mm -hmm. and it's being manipulated by I think three or four fellows three, inside this three internal and then one external one would, who sort of played the trainer as it were but yeah. these were operating things as well these were great you went to Warhorse. yes actually I have a somewhat of a distant connection to that because one of my best friends in the world is an actor named Ted Coach I went to college with him brilliant actor uh, lived here in Chicago for a while. Actually went to New York with the Goodman production of Death of a Salesman with Brian Dennehy. He played Happy Loman in that. Ted, after he moved to New York, he met and married a lovely woman, a brilliantly talented musician, uh, actor, named Lenya Rideout. Uh, Lenya was in the revival of Company that mm -hmm. they did, where the whole cast played instruments. She played stand-up bass and violin mm -hmm. and that. Saw that show. Yeah. Raul Esparza. Yeah, that was, she was in that production. And she was in the original production of War Horse at Lincoln Center. So when I we went to see her, I brought my mother. Lenya took us on stage afterwards. We got to see... The puppetry, as close as you could get to the puppetry, they actually elevate it. They pull it up off the deck yeah. so no one can get too close to it, but you could see it. And it's just stunning up close. It, it's like Legos made by God. You know, it's just yeah. the, the way the joints all come together. Yeah. It's fascinating. And so I was very interested to see this, and especially with the skin on the elephant, which they, it was burlap. It looked like it might as well have been burlap bags, which gave that beautiful skin texture. Yeah, it was lovely. Because the, the horse in War Horse had a harder sheen to it, as, right. a, as a horse would, versus yeah. an elephant. Yeah. It, was, it was wonderful. These were tremendous, yeah. and as I said, they, they open these curtains and outlumber these two elephants, and then the little one frolics around the stage for a bit, and then they end the the first act with all of the performers on stage and the elephants doing leg lifts and it's this tableau that looks like a poster from 1903's yeah. Barnum and Bailey Circus yeah. um, without lions and tigers perhaps but certainly the elephants and the performers and uh, the uh, aerialists it's just a tremendous show and if you have a chance to see it in your city especially our New York listeners at Madison Square Garden the theater at Madison Square Garden I, I couldn't recommend it more highly I, I wanted to mention one other great performance the uh, the juggler is called the great Gaston yeah. was his stage name, yeah. performer named Francois Bory, and he would juggle clubs. Yeah. Uh, I believe they're called clubs. Is that you're you're, well, you're a juggler? I am. I am a juggler. Some people call them pins, and some people call them clubs. And they're pins when you catch them. Yeah, <laughs> it's a club <laughs> when it hits you in the head. You see, <laughs> no, they're juggling I, I clubs. They're juggling clubs. Juggling yeah. clubs. Yes. 
And uh, this guy was really quite something. <laughs> when he had six going at the same time, yeah. and he did them very fast, yeah. it almost looked like CG. It, no, it, it, was... it, it seemed like this can't possibly be real. And he would stand sideways to the audience so that you could see the silver and white and black flashing before your eyes. It's a complete blur. It was a complete blur that anyone could move that fast. And I do juggle, and I was actually going to juggle for the listeners today because I thought did that Did you bring nice your clubs? One. I did, actually. I brought them with me. Let, let's let's um, let's let so our I listeners will, I'll, I'll, I'll start, listen to you I'll juggle while I uh, while I tell this. We'll start with balls, okay? So we'll just assume that. Let me just. I, I got to move the microphone in such a way so that you can hear me. So, okay. So I'm juggling now. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, like I was saying. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'll do clubs later. I'll do clubs, and then we can show it on the, on the webpage. You're quite the talented co-host. I, I do juggle, and the thing is, to give you an idea how difficult what he was doing is, if you juggle three clubs or three balls or whatever, that means the odd number has to be in the air. So if you're juggling three clubs, you have to keep one club in the air at all times because you have one in each hand. But there was one point he was juggling seven clubs, which means that he has to keep five clubs in the air. Now, while that sounds like it's five times as hard as doing one, it's actually 2,500 times as hard as doing one because the speed increases exponentially. So four clubs is twice as fast as three. And five clubs is twice as fast as four. It's the juggling Richter scale. Yeah, <laughs> It's high school math, and you lost me. So when he was doing seven, which he didn't do very long, he managed to that, do he, seven he, it's for called flashing. a he flashed, few seconds yeah, 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 because yeah. seven was well beyond imagination. Yeah. How many flips of the club does it do in the air or it, the pin? In How order, many times does it turn over before I, you catch it again? I was looking, and it looked like he had to do at least triple or quadruple flips of each one to get the height necessary. See, that's not something you can practice in your living room. You need a vaulted ceiling, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and you had to wrap the dog in bubble wrap or something, you know. But uh, Hide all the valuables. <laughs> right, exactly. Send the wife to the beauty parlor. But you do need, you have to get that height. You can't time one flip of a club over a 50-foot height. Because it needs the momentum of the spin to keep it going up and to bring it down and catch it. So just that alone, to throw one club up 50 or 60 feet and then have it land handle side to your hand, that's a skill in and of itself. Now take that and multiply it by seven and do it all at the same time. It was yeah. as magnificent an act as any of the others that we had in the show. One thing I wanted to see towards the end when they kind of do the climax. They did a high wire act, which was yeah. the finale of the show. I, I kind of missed the trapeze act. This is a quibble. This is not yeah. a, a criticism, but I, well, I'm, I'm a fan of trapeze yeah. acts. I'm not such a fan of the high wire all that much because it scares me. But the trapeze artistry just fascinates me. That's such a huge part of circus, though, is the trapeze. It's the high wire, the trapeze, the clowns. This is a show that appeals to people of all ages, yeah. uh, as, as a good circus should. Mm. I think adults had as great a time as most of the kids. Well, you said it best when you said, uh, in terms of grabbing the audience, there were so many children there. And yet, like you said, when she was doing the ring work and, and when they were doing some of the, uh, the contortionist was doing all that, 
you could hear a pin drop. And when you have a, an audience that's maybe, the night I was there, it was about 20% children, that they're so wrapped and they're so engaged. How do you get that now? How do you get that in this without an iPad? How do you get that in these days? For, you, you, don't, you don't get it on YouTube. Yeah. You, you get it only at live theater, at live spectacle. Yeah. And this was spectacle and music and all of the great elements that go into making fantastic theater uh, Truly. were part of this. It was just wonderful. I have uh, sad news. This is news that I've announced before on this show previously uh, some years ago. The Fantastics, one of my favorite shows in the world. Longest running one, isn't it? Is yeah. now set to close again. <laughs> Producers said it'll close in June, ending a chapter for a show that has been on New York stages for much of the last half century. It opened at the Sullivan Street Playhouse in Greenwich Village in 1960 and had a record 17,162 performances. I looked that up. I don't know that off the top of my head, so I'm not that much of a Fantastics geek. And that was during a 42-year run. The current Off-Broadway revival, which I have not seen in New York, opened in 2006, a couple of years ago, right when we first actually started this podcast in 2015. Uh, the producers announced that the show would close for lack of funding, but two anonymous donors contributed enough money to keep it running. Apparently, that money has now run out. And once again, they've announced the closing of the Fantastics. I can't even equate what this is like. It would be like saying the Grand Canyon is closing. You can't, yeah. you can't go see the Grand Canyon anymore. Exactly. It's just, we, we need to close it. It's just we, we don't have the money to keep it open, and so you can't go there. I'm shocked about it. Um, <laughs> so if you were going to New York to see the Fantastics, I, I would hurry before uh, June. And the thing is, all they have to do is announce that it's closing. When they might have a lull in ticket sales, it's like, oh, you know, it's closing. Oh, you know, we got to see it now. And now then, you're thinking like a producer. Yeah, exactly. Really, or I, or just a deceitful person. Well, it, it, it's well. <laughs> it's it's a sad and sorry state of affairs. I'm saddened. Uh, of course. <laughs> I know you're laughing, but I love this show. Who, wait, who wait, no, doesn't I, love I, the Fantastic? I'm laughing because you don't actually think it's going to close, do you? Okay. I have to say, I'm the anonymous donor. I didn't want to say, <laughs> I didn't want to reveal it on All the right, air. All right, open that yes. wallet. Let's <laughs> yes. come on. We need yes. we need this thing to run. I'm a redoing few more it years. with all Elton John songs, and we're calling it Captain Fantastics. <sighs> You're the anonymous donor. I, I wanted to mention to our listeners, uh, sometimes I do this towards the end of the podcast, but I thought I'd throw it in now. You can help support Booth One and our mission of presenting the best in lively conversation and amazing guests by going to our donate button on our website. It's quick, it's easy, and it's fully tax deductible, something that uh, you should keep in mind, Paul, oh, really? when you're doing your taxes next year. <laughs> it would be so appreciated by the entire Booth One team. Go to www.booth-one.com. Just look for the big donate button, and uh, any contribution would be more than welcome. I don't think people know how many people it takes to really pull this off. I mean, there's 60 to 70 people in this room that are actively working on generating this podcast. And a lot boy, of people don't know that. The and massage, boy, are they quiet. The massage therapist, the, the barista, all of these people, they, they need to be paid. And uh, I, I have my support <laughs> teacup pig here, my <laughs> Emotional support pig. Oh, is that, is yeah. that what that was? Yeah, that's what I that thought is. it was a doorstop that moved. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. no. Down Jeanette. 
Snuffles <laughs> is fine. Um, and I have a pass to bring them on airplanes. That makes my skin crawl, that whole thing. It just, I'm, I go crazy over that. The whole thing about the comfort animals. Because someone is anxious and needs their Pomeranian. Yeah, all you have to do is have a friendly and uh, cooperative doctor hmm. fill out the yeah. proper paperwork for yeah. you, and you, you could bring a small pony on an airplane. <laughs> exactly. And exactly. what could they do? Right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's actually going to be the new tagline. Bring, <laughs> bring, 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 your, bring pony. your pony. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come for the flight, stay for the livestock. They could do Circus 1903 on an airplane. In uh, the air. <laughs> I was looking through some Broadway news the other day, and I came across a story about Little Foxes. We've talked about the Little Foxes, yes. which is opening yes. at Manhattan Theater Club with uh, Laura Linney and Cynthia Nixon in the cast, but they're going to switch roles, right. uh, we think, every other performance. And uh, I read that it was Laura Linney's idea for this to happen. She, uh, she phoned up the director, Daniel Sullivan, and said, you know, I have a crazy, crazy thought. What if we switched off roles every other time? And there was this long pause, as a director would do, as you know. And, and Daniel Sullivan apparently said, that is the most fantastic idea I've ever heard. Let's wow. do it. Wow. <laughs> so that's how it came about, Laura Linney's idea. And I, I really do want to get to New York and see this production. The producer's mindset would be people coming in for the weekend who would like to see both would have the option of seeing And both. dinner in between. Yeah, yeah. Yes, from a producer's standpoint, it would be great. It could be like the Nicholas Nickleby of Lillian Hellman plays. Yes, you go yes, for one, you, yes. then you go have dinner, and then you come back and you see see it again. Uh, or, or the sequel, Dimeless Dimelby. Have I used that joke before? <laughs> yes, you have. Oh, man. You know, sometimes as soon as it's out of my mouth, I'm like, I just went to the same well. So I want some forgiveness for at least recognizing the fact that I use the same joke. You get absolute <laughs> forgiveness. Let's go back and tell our listeners what we were talking about at the beginning of the show when I asked you if you were still full from last night. We went to a dinner party. Yes. You and your spouse, me and my spouse, and a number of other people. I think there were a total of 14 people, yeah. including our host and hostess. Yeah. And they threw... A big night yes. recreation party. Now, yep. big night is the 1996 film starring Stanley Tucci mm -hmm. and uh, Tony Shalhoub, a bunch of people. Minnie Driver's in the movie. Ian Holm is in the movie. Lee Schreiber is in the film. Yeah. He plays the bouncer, the doorman at uh, Ian Holm's restaurant, and he doesn't really have any speaking lines. He's just standing there looking back and forth at guests and holding the door for them. And who's the woman who's on West Wing? Who's in it? Uh, Allison Janney. Isn't Allison she? Janney's yeah, yeah. in it. Yeah. So they make a big dinner at their failing restaurant because yeah. they think Louis Prima is going to show up right. and this is going to save the day. And they go all out. They pull out all the stops. And the centerpiece of this is a dish called a timpano, which is a baked giant casserole type thing yeah. where you cover this casserole in homemade uh, crust, like a nice uh, flaky crust, yeah. and inside is everything but the kitchen sink. Right. Uh, right. Hard-boiled eggs, salami, meatballs, pasta, sauce, sauce. pasta, yeah. A binder, a, an egg binder, in addition to the hard-cooked eggs, an egg binder that sort of holds it all together. And yeah. it takes 
pretty much all day or several days to create. Yeah. Well, our hostess decided she's going to throw a big night party, and she's going to try to recreate the dinner that they make in the film, yeah. which is astounding. Yeah. She did. Perfection. <laughs> perfection, was, yeah. It was perfection. I had a special affection and, and, and felt very proud to be there because I have a, sort of a weird connection to that, too. I went to college with Christine Tucci, who is Stanley's younger sister, met Stanley a couple of times. where She's still a, a great friend of mine, and we, we chat on Facebook on occasion, and so I reached out to her for some tips and tricks that she shared with, uh, with our hostess. I'm excited to send the pictures that I took of the food, which we should put a couple of the pictures on the website for Booth One to... Show our, we absolutely should. Our know. hostess was a fan of the show and a great friend of ours, Nancy Needles, mm-hmm. and her husband, Arnie, were, our, again, our host and hostess. And the guest list was really eclectic. Yeah. You were there. There were partners of Nancy's from her old days at the U.S. Attorney's Office. In fact, a gentleman named Gary Shapiro was there, and he's retired now, but he headed up the organized crime division of the U.S. Attorney's Office. Yeah. He actually gave us a ride home, and you know what? I never felt safer in my life. (laughs) I would imagine so. I would imagine so. I know we live in Evanston, and there's probably not a lot of mob activity going on. Well, you'd be surprised, actually. Which, by the way, i got to talk to you about something after the show. You take care of that thing for me? Remember we said that time with the guy? Okay. He's a friend of ours. He's a friend you're of ours. Fr- you know friend, what I'm saying? That friend of yours, yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing, well, we went with that guy that time. <laughs> <laughs> I want to also uh, give a shout out to our hostess, not only because the tampano was an astonishing accomplishment, culinary accomplishment, but the other stuff that she did around it, the appetizers, the appetizer plate, which was sort of a clock face of seven little hugs from Jesus, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> just this amazing... pasto hugs, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was wonderful. It was just a, a little, little tartlet. A little tomato a tartlet. Ramp and and some peppers and a... Uh, a jardinier. Jardinier, and it was, it was actually just a beautiful preamble to the tympano. Yeah, it some was, olives were in there. It was great. If you've not seen this movie, listeners, please uh, go ahead to Netflix or Amazon or wherever you see films and look it up. This yeah. is a really, really fun movie directed by Campbell Scott and, and Stanley Tucci. And I w- Yeah, it's a dual, dual direction, yeah. I always tell people, don't watch this movie in the evening. Get reservations at your favorite Italian restaurant for the evening and start watching this movie about 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And then bring a co-signer to pay your bill at the Italian restaurant. Because <laughs> you will eat that much, I'm telling you. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Uh, we watched it the night before just to get ourselves in the mood. Yeah. And I was ready for a late night feast yeah. and couldn't wait for the next day. It's, it's wonderful. And this tempano turned out great. It, it's a whole presentation. When you take it out of the oven, you let it sit for a while in its pan. Then you flip it over. Then you gently nudge the pan out, and you lift it up, and there it is. And it's all held together by this beautiful crust. It's like a chicken pot pie made by a bored cardiologist. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, there there were there were some calories there. Did you notice the defibrillator I on the did. wall just I did. in case? Yeah, yeah it's you like, know, here's your salad. And this clear. Was, this was not necessarily a young crowd. No, uh, you know, there were there were some retirees in in the mix. Uh, yes. All all delightful people. Would you, we had a wonderful time. Would you like extra sauce or some conductive gel? Completely <laughs> <laughs> up to you. <laughs> and uh, Arnie, uh, Nancy's husband, played. Well, primo in the movie, the Stanley Tucci role, kind of. He was in a white jacket and yeah. clearing the plates and welcoming guests. Ah, uh, oh, you guy, you're the, you're the guy, you're, you're the, the guy. guy. Yeah. It was quite the evening. It's an interesting idea for a dinner party. You can find all these recipes online or in Italian cookbooks for sure. It's an astounding idea, but to actually bring it to fruition, because I think a lot of people have the idea to do it, and then they look and see exactly what's involved. She said, our hostess said... About three days of prep, just about three days and having to have it sit and all these other things. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, let's do that. And then they actually see what's involved. And say, yeah, last night eh, was a maybe Friday. we'll have ravioli. Last <laughs> night was Friday, and they said they started in earnest on Tuesday. Yeah, crazy. So as I mentioned, you could find these recipes in cookbooks or online. We're going to post it on our website mm. in the show notes, at least a link to it. So <laughs> anybody who's adventurous enough to take it on will find that information uh, pretty easily. We introduced a segment a couple of weeks ago called Good Times and Bum Times. Are you familiar with that phrase from Follies? These are two unrelated stories. One's kind of a good time and one's kind of a bum time. <laughs> I'll start with the good time. This is James Sundby of Minnesota. He somehow survived without serious injury after he accidentally drove, this is the key word, accidentally drove his car off an embankment, soared 210 feet over Lake Lome Dieu, and landed on its partially frozen surface. The fact that that guy is alive is even a miracle, police said. How do you accidentally drive over an embankment and soar 210 feet through the air? I want to know if when he landed, he just went... L'homme de <laughs> Sacre bleu. Sacre bleu. Sometimes lot, I just go for the low-hanging fruit. There, there's a lot of lakes in Minnesota, many of them uh, French-named. You're absolutely right. They call it the land of 10,000 lakes for and a one good idiot, reason. Apparently. <laughs> and apparently one idiot who survived. The bum time is a uh, Miami defense attorney's pants caught fire in court last week while he defended an accused arsonist. Oh, okay. Uh, Steven Gutierrez, 28 years old, that's pretty young for a defense attorney, uh, had just begun his closing argument when smoke started billowing from his right trouser pocket. He bolted from the courtroom and later said a bad e-cigarette battery had ignited in his pants. <laughs> It was surreal, one witness uh, said. Claudie Charles was on trial for allegedly setting his car on fire to collect insurance money. Speaking of the mob, an organized crime. <laughs> uh, Gutierrez argued that the vehicle had spontaneously combusted, but uh, the jury found Charles guilty of second-degree arson. I want to I get your take on something, uh, Paul, as a, as a uh, producer and a director uh, of theater. moving on. Yeah. A few weeks ago, we had Sean Graney, the artistic director of the Hypocrites Theater Company here in Chicago on the air. And one of the things we had him 
on for was to ask him about the recent ceasing of operations due to lack of funding. Right. In fact, they cut the last show of their season and they just ceased and they let everybody go and they decided, well, we're going to try to reorganize. And I tried to get Sean to talk a little bit about how are you going to reorganize your nonprofit off-loop theater company in a way that's different and maybe can be more successful. Well, they are taking a cue from Hollywood, something that you know a little bit about, Paul, and they're going to start funding plays before they produce them. Beginning this month, hypocrites will pitch two plays to potential ticket buyers. Now, these are probably past subscribers and Mm -hmm. people who have purchased tickets to shows before in the last few years. So they are good target audience. And they will ask them to commit. If their interest hits critical financial mass, the shows will go on. If not, they won't. Essentially, this is crowdfunding. Funding space and discounting are generally the three areas where theater companies fail. Right, right. What do you think of this idea? It's it's very much like independent film idea where you're not going to go ahead and make the movie until you raise your five, six, seven million dollars and you have it in your pocket. Is this a good trend well, for it's, theater? Well, it's interesting because it's it's not dissimilar from what we did with uh, Seaglass Theater, my theater company in Los Angeles. Now, we had it a lot easier than the hypocrites because we would do one show a year. So it was much easier for us. And we were nomadic. We didn't have our own space or anything like that. We would go to you know different venues and... And, and rent different venues. But what uh, our model was fundraising, spring, summer, show in the fall. So we would not mount the production until we could pay for the entire production from top to bottom. So there's some precedent for this. So, yes, but that being said, we didn't do it in, in appealing directly to the ticket buyer. We would, we would have all the standard things, silent auction, different fundraisers, uh, events that we would do to raise money. What's interesting about this is that it goes to the same market of people that are going to be attending the show. And what I think is so inspiring about this is that it takes that potential audience and makes them part of, the, in effect, the creative process. Because they're deciding what the offering is going to be based on their tastes or what whatever it is that, that they would like to see on the stage. Whenever you see like the seasons for the larger theaters, there's always the one dropped in there that is the crowd pleaser that you know. So, you know, we got Ionesco and we have Beckett, and right in the middle we got Mary Poppins or something sure, like that. Sure, you give audiences yeah. what they want right. uh, in, a, in a way, and then around the fringes of that, you give them things that you think are going to challenge them. Right. Take them to the next level of theater experience, and you try to grow your mission that way yeah. over the course of many, many, many seasons. And that's that's really the biggest role of an artistic director, other than fundraising, of course, is trying to find the right niche for your company where you, again, please your core audience to some extent, but then you challenge them on the edges to another extent. This is such a creative idea to throw out a couple of show possibilities with obviously descriptions of the shows and what they will be, and then ask the audiences to vote. Yeah. And say, yes, I will buy a ticket to that, or no, I will not buy a ticket to that. Yeah. And I, I think it could lead to something else, which I always wanted to see happen. And I don't know, it might happen in Chicago. We've only been back here for less than a year. But the idea of a theater collective, the idea of three, say, three theater companies having the same space, all those expenses 
just the logistics of electricity and staffing and all of that. Those things could be shared by three separate theater companies. And then the productions would be independent, cast, direct, director, producer, so that three theater companies, all of whom might have a fairly decent following, a fairly decent mailing list, email list, or whatever, are now able to combine their resources. You might, as a theater company, do one less show a season, mm -hmm. but you'd have a much more fertile season. You'd have cross-promotion of people coming to shows with programs stuffed with the other shows that are going on in that venue. I don't know if that exists here, but uh, this is, seems like a great lead-in to something Well, like that. Theater 773, which is a, a rental building that has, I think they have four spaces in well, there now, and you can rent a space, and a number of companies rent space there on a continuing ongoing basis, but the companies themselves are not sharing the expense of owning the space or the upkeep of the space. There's a company that owns the building and they're renting out their spaces, right. but they promote and cross-promote each other's shows. Okay. And they're not too shy about, again, cross-promoting and helping each sure. other. Same audience, It's, it's yeah. a bit of a collective, in a way, yeah. uh, without uh, having to spend the kind of money to upkeep a building uh, of your own. Right. That's sort of what I'm thinking about, but not so much with a rental house, mm -hmm. like well, a, a regular brick and mortar. Like, it's a shame they haven't been able to do anything with the Griffin space over on Foster. It's an old police station mm. that the city gave the Griffin for, I think, a dollar. But they can't raise the money to overhaul it because it's so beyond code. So it's just sitting on this corner and they're trying desperately. God love them. They're working so hard trying to do it. But if two or three other theater companies could come in and they could all have a, a theater center, if you will. I think this idea of the hypocrites reviving themselves under a new business yeah, model is, is really clever. Yeah, it really is. It really is. As usual, Paul, we'd like to do a little update of what's happening in the spring and the fall in the theater around here. And I'll just note a couple of things. There's a production of My Fair Lady. Now, I know that sounds kind of blasé for our show, but it's being done by the Lyric Opera. One of our cast members is actually taking a hiatus oh, from that our show happening? to go do that. That's yeah. wonderful. That is starting uh, April 28th and running through the end of May. They've put some money into these musicals in the past few years. They did uh, Carousel, they did Oklahoma, and those were wonderful productions. <laughs> they looked they looked great. And of course, there's a 95 piece orchestra playing right <laughs> under the stage. The Lyric Opera Orchestra yeah. is playing, so you can't get much better than that. This My Fair Lady production, uh, I, I've never seen. I don't think My Fair Lady on the stage. So I'm excited about this because it's going to be absolutely first class. Yeah. Another. Uh, show that's opening is Linda Vista, which is the new Tracy Let's Play at uh, Steppenwolf's Downstairs Theater. That's uh, March 30th through May 21st. Uh, production of Jesus Christ Superstar. Why do I mention this? Well, because the, the Paramount Theater has cast a wholly African-American company to do this show, which is extremely rare and very bold. It's, it's a wonderful idea. Uh, April 19th, that show opens. And uh, one last play that I'll mention is Sarah Rule's play for Peter Pan on her 70th birthday that's being done at the Shattered Globe Theater. And, and she wrote this play for her mother, Kathleen, who was an actress. And Kathleen's going to star in it for the oh first my. time. 
I think Lord. that's, I think that's oh, wonderful. That's incredible. Two other shows that we're looking forward to are Tom Stoppard's The Hard Problem at the Court Theater, which is south of here uh, on the south side of Chicago on the campus of the University of Chicago. This is directed by award-winning artistic director Charlie Newell. We're seeing that next weekend. And Picnic. The William Inge play, which yeah. has been getting some revivals around the country yeah. in, in various iterations. This is directed by American Theater Company's new artistic director, Will Davis. And starring in this production is a friend of the show, singer and actor Robert Cornelius, an yeah. extraordinary talent. I understand that you have a close connection with Robert Well, Cornelius. it's funny that you say that. I didn't know you were going to mention that, but my wife, Monica, is uh, attending that show tonight. She has tickets to see Picnic tonight. She's going with a couple of friends of hers. I can't go. I have a Tony and Tina's engagement. She's going, and Monica and I met at Don Roth's River Plaza Restaurant, downtown Chicago, one of the Blackhawk restaurants. Quite a few years ago. Yeah. I was the bartender, and Monica was the manager, and Robert was one of the waiters. So we've known Robert since wow. the late 80s. Yeah. Well, when we have him on the show, which we're trying to do, and it's, it's going to be difficult while he's doing Picnic because they probably have a tough performance schedule, but I, I bet we can uh, convince him to come on and, and visit us in the booth soon. We're going to have to have you on That'd with be him. That'd be a hoot, yeah. Because I'm sure you guys have some great stories to tell from oh, yeah. your youth. I hope you got a lot of tape, as they say. <laughs> dating myself there. But. You're familiar with our closing segment, Paul. We do the kiss of death every week. This is a tribute and a profile of someone who has recently passed. We're going to talk about Bob Audie today. A-U-D-Y, Bob Audie, who passed away on March 10th. He worked in every aspect of show business as a director and choreographer for Broadway and television, movies, summer theaters across the country. Like so many fine teachers and choreographers that aren't really nationally known, Robert Audie is sorely underrepresented on the web, which is why I wanted to profile him, because it's very hard to find information about him. For over 40 years, Mr. Audie has been one of the foremost teachers of tap dance, as well as jazz in New York City, uh, sending great numbers of students onto professional jobs where the skills they learned from him gave them the goods they needed in the world of show business. As a teacher and coach, he worked with many stars, including Shirley MacLaine, John Travolta, quite the dancer, Sybil Shepard, Diane Keaton, Ben Vereen, Jerry Orbach, Madeline Kahn, Betty Buckley, a host of others, and Gary Zabinski. Really? I have to say that wow. in my early days of living in New York, when I still thought I had visions of being a Broadway hoofer or some sort of chorus boy, I took a three-month class at the Broadway Dance Center with Mr. Audie, and occasionally he would have... Just a dance have, belt and a tube of chapstick, just... That's all I needed, <laughs> and a dream. And a dream. <laughs> As director and choreographer, Bob Audie worked on over 25 shows, including George M. with Joel Gray, Unsinkable Molly Brown with Carol Lawrence... Oh, wow. You, you once interviewed yes, Carol did, Lawrence in your Los Angeles radio days. Mm -hmm. The Music Man with, get this, Peter Marshall and Edie Adams. The Music Man <laughs> with Peter Marshall and Edie Adams. Great. And no Known Annette with Vicki Lawrence. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with Carol Baker. And Anything Goes with Margaret Whiting. 
I was able to obtain at great cost and huge effort one of Bob Audie's audio recordings that he made back in the 70s. Now, he recorded this as an LP, of course. Uh, I happened to obtain a CD of that. This CD cost me over 40 bucks on the web because it's extremely rare. And it's called Tap Dancing for Beginners. It's instruction by Robert Audie. This record begins with the sounds of an actual Robert Audie dance class and with Audie greeting the listener and... Uh, potential students. Let's have a listen to the intro of this. Hi, I'm Bob Audie. Welcome to my tap class. Even though you're not here in this studio with me, it is possible for you to pick up the fundamental steps used by all tap dancers, from students here in my studio to the great dancers of Hollywood and Broadway. So let's clear a space and get ready for some fun either by yourself, with someone else, or invite the gang over and give a prize for the best hoofer in the group. The detailed instructions on the inside panels of the album enable you to understand completely the technique with which each step is done. Once you have the fundamentals, once you have learned the combinations, experiment. Mix, match, create your own combinations. Okay, the rug's rolled up, the music's coming on, and you're on your way to becoming a tap dancer. So that's Bob yeah. talking directly to the student who's yeah. trying to learn tap dancing through this uh, recording. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear. I was rolling back the carpet. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. I'm so taken. I know. It really, it really gets the blood going, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, you want to invite friends over. It's sort of like playing Twister. I'm trying, to think, over. I'm trying to think of something more difficult to teach with no visual at all. Well, and, two and things that come to mind for me are driving. And knife throwing. <laughs> I was going to say sex, but knife throwing knife works throwing. too. I mean, sex for beginners on CD. Sex I, that, for beginners. That yeah. could work. After this introduction, Bob announces the names of various steps. Things like shuffle step, ball change. These are basic tap dancing steps. Shuffle, hop, shuffle, flaps, uh, flap ball change, something called the cramp roll, which is certainly what I, what would happen yes, to me if I, I tried I any of I prefer it with dancing. avocado, but you could, I, a good cramp roll, I'm all over. And the musicians for this session, there's a pianist and a bass player and a drummer. The bass player is named Wimpy Vernick. And on drums, Casey Casino. Casey <laughs> Casino. They, they were this apparently is, this is very, very popular in the 70s. This is one guy in the studio that they just gave a bunch of different names to because he played nine instruments and it was an audio recording and no one would know. Let's play a couple of the uh, technique teachings that Bob Audie does on his uh, tap dancing for beginners here. Brush, toe, heel. Brush toe heel, brush toe heel, brush toe heel, brush toe heel. Eight and one, two and three, four and five, six and seven. Brush toe heel, brush toe heel, brush toe heel, brush toe heel. Eight and one, two and three, four and five, six and seven. 
brush your heel, brush your heel, brush your heel, brush your heel. Brush your heel, brush your heel, brush your heel, brush your heel. Buffalo. Leap shuffle leap, leap shuffle leap, leap shuffle leap, leap shuffle leap. Eight and a one, two and a three, four and a five, six and a seven. Leap shuffle leap, leap shuffle leap, leap shuffle leap, leap shuffle leap. Eight and a one, two and a three, four and a five, six and a seven. Leap shuffle leap, leap shuffle leap. Leap shuffle leap, leap shuffle leap. Leap shuffle leap, leap shuffle leap, leap shuffle leap, leap shuffle leap. So you see, you can learn how to do these steps yeah. by listening. Also yeah. on the Inside jacket of the album, and also there's a little booklet in this CD that I that I purchased, but it describes the steps <laughs> okay. in words that right. you might be able to understand. You know, if you shut your eyes while you're listening to it, it's almost as though you're listening to a recording that you really should be watching. <laughs> well, precisely so. Precisely so. It helps if you have at least some modicum of background in tap a little bit. Yeah. And even if you're rusty, if you took some tap in, in college or early in your aspiring failed career like mine, <laughs> um, at least I, I know what a shuffle step and a ball change should look like. And I could probably revive my technique a little bit through this tap dancing for beginners. But Bob Audie is renowned as a teacher of tap and jazz. We make fun a little bit of this Tap Dancing for Beginners CD, but he had a special gift as a great teacher that makes you learn to do things you never thought you could. This was his terrific gift that he passed on to thousands and thousands and thousands of, of students throughout his career. Shirley McLean said, Bob taught me everything I know about tap dancing. I love him. And uh, Ann Miller is quoted as saying, Bob Audie is one of the best tap dance teachers in the world. Mm. High praise. I, for one, thank him for showing me the steps and showing me the fact that I really couldn't do that professionally. <laughs> <laughs> Was he a nice man? Was An awfully nice man. Couldn't be sweeter. You can tell just by the way he talks no. uh, on, on what you've just heard from the, from the album. You can tell how There's lovely he is palatable and how patient he is and how much he wants you to be good. You know, there's, there's many teachers who kind of throw the stuff at you and say, well, you either have the talent for it or you don't. He believed that everybody could learn and everybody could do it. And if you had a special talent, you could do it professionally. No. He was a, a generous, generous man. 
Tune into our next episode when our guest may well be the aforementioned Robert Cornelius or Charlie Newell. Like us on Facebook, everyone. Follow us on Twitter. Email me at gary at booth-one.com. Even you can email me, Paul. And I can. Tell me what you thought of the episode. Uh, we'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and comments. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski along with my co-host, Paul Strolley. Thank you saying keep listening and so long until next time. <laughs>